Welcome to Set for Life with Pastor Ray Jensen of Calvary Chapel Pearland. You can find us at setforliferadio.com. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So let's listen from God's Word, verse by verse, on how we can prepare for the coming of the Lord Messiah Jesus, who died on the cross, so that you can be set for life. Did you hear about the Aggie that won the gold medal in the Olympics? He was so proud of it, he went and had it bronzed. That has something to do, <laughs> sort of, with our story today, because we're going to be talking about First Kings 7, Part 2, Lots of Bronze. One time I went to this church as a guest speaker, and the pastor was not there. That's why I was guest speaking there. So I went up and gave my message and gave the best I could. Well, then after it was over, I asked people to come forward, and several people did, and they gave their life to Jesus, and uh, it was great, great, wonderful time. But then here you got these new believers standing in front of a church, and they kind of have that, now what do we do kind of thing. You don't just welcome them in and then say goodbye, hope you do well. You put them in the body of Christ so they can be built up from there. So I called the leadership forward that I had there, because the main pastor wasn't there, and I said, come up here, please. I need some leadership up forward to uh, help these people and go talk to them and lead them in what to do next. So some people came up and took them off to the side, and I thought, okay, good. We closed the service, and everything was done. It was over with. Well, then I was talking to some people after, and the leadership came up to me and was led by one man who seemed mad. And he come up to me, and he said, Ray, we weren't expecting you to do that. And I said, oh, well, and my first thought was, oh, I'm sorry, you know, being all nice. But I thought, wait a minute, I was confused. What do you mean you weren't expecting me to do that? And they said, well, we weren't expecting you to have people come forward like that. And I realized what they were saying. They didn't, they weren't expecting anything to happen. He actually said that we weren't expecting anything to happen like that. And I said, well, if you're not expecting anything like that to happen, then what are you doing serving in a church? What, what, what's, what are you here for? If you don't expect anything to happen for people to give their life to Jesus and give them a place in the body of Christ, then what are you doing? What, what are you here for? And that was kind of a, a shocking moment there. But, you know, these guys had gotten so focused on the external things. Are the lights correct? Were the instruments on tune? Did the music sound great? You know, did we have our sound guys doing everything right? Did we start on time? All, this, all these little check boxes of what we're, this work we're doing, da-da-da-da-da, down the list. But they did not have their focus on the inward things. They forgot about the more important more precious inward things, such as people coming and giving their lives to Jesus, wanting to fit in with the body of Christ. What do I do now? You got to accept them into the body and have somebody say, hey, we're here to receive you. Glad you gave your life to Jesus, but now let's go. Come follow me. And we didn't expect that. What do you expect? These, I felt like I had to remind these guys what they're here to do. Well, I wanted you to keep a snapshot of this picture that I just gave you as we go into 1 Kings 7 and verse 13. Now, King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre, and he was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze worker. He was filled with wisdom, 
and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all his work. And he cast two pillars of bronze, each one 18 cubits high, and a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of each. Then he made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. He made a lattice network with wreaths of chain work for the capitals which were on top of the pillars, seven chains for one capital and seven for the other capital. So he made the pillars and two rows of pomegranates above the network all around to cover the capitals that were on top, and thus he did for the other capital. The capitals which were on top of the pillars in the hall were in the shape of lilies, four cubits. The capitals on the two pillars also had pomegranates above, by the convex surface, which was next to the network, and there were two hundred such pomegranates in rows on each of the capitals all around. Then he set up pillars by the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the right and called its name Jachin, and he set up the pillar on the left and called its name Boaz. The tops of the pillars were in the shape of lilies, so the work of the pillars was finished. Okay, so these bronze pillars and capitals being talked about here, we know what a a pillar is, but what is a capital? That's that wider part that's on the very top of a pillar where it meets the structure that it's holding up. That's what a capital is. So we read that Solomon's pillars had pomegranates on it. This was probably to depict agricultural blessing. Lord, we ask that you bless our crops, and that would give that picture. And also the fact that one pillar was named Jachin, and the other was called Boaz. And why would you name pillars? Because Jachin actually means that Yahweh establishes, and Boaz means in Yahweh is strength. So the Lord establishes, and the Lord has strength. So these pillars would stand as a reminder of God's establishment of Israel and his strength, and it was only available to the Israelites if they obeyed him. Because remember, he said, if you obey my commands and walk in my statutes, right? So this would remind them of their side of the deal to be obedient. Now, I can imagine if I was an Israelite in that day, and I'm walking along, and I see those pillars gleaming off the temple, and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, the the Lord establishes, Yahweh establishes, and in the Lord there is strength. It would cause me to also look up and see the pomegranates on the top of the capitals, and it would make me think, you know what, I'm trying to grow those crops right now, and if I expect my crops to be successful and productive, then I better first obey the Lord, because that's the terms he put before me. If I obey the Lord, that's what he will do. So if I expect anything good to come out of my work, (laughs) I'm required to answer to God first. And that's what those pillars would say to me. They stood as a witness that if you obey the Lord God, then he will take care and provide for you. And that's a good reminder to have is to obey your God. That's what these pillars would do. First Kings 7.23 is talking about the sea and the oxen. And he made the sea of cast bronze, 10 cubits from one brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Below its brim were ornamental buds circling it all around, ten to a cubit, all the way around the sea. The ornamental buds were cast in two rows when it was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east. The sea was set upon them, and all their back parts 
pointed inward. It was a handbreadth thick, and its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained 2,000 baths. Okay, what is the sea? Well, another name for the sea is a great bowl. It's a big basin. It's basically like a big tank. And it was so huge that I guess somebody said, I guess we could pour the whole sea into this thing. It's so big. <laughs> it was full of water. And so this was used for the priest to wash in because you're doing messy work of butchering, sacrifice animals. You got to have a way to clean up. And this sea, though, it kind of reminds me a lot of the laver bowl that was at the Old Testament tabernacle. It was used for the priest to wash in. But now there's going to be the need for conducting a whole lot of sacrifices. You need a whole lot more water than what that laver was at the tabernacle. You got to think the Israelites are now established. They're in the land. They've been multiplying for a long time. There's so many people. A lot of sacrifice work is going to be needed. There's a lot of cleanup going on. You need a big, big laver, a sea of water to wash with. And so lots of sacrifice is going to be going on. In fact, in the very next chapter, we're going to see they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the uh, temple and they sacrificed so many sheep in auction that nobody could count how many were, were sacrifices were made. So you need a pretty big basin, a big storage of water to wash with. Now, keep in mind, this sea was not like just a shower, something to clean with. It had a much bigger purpose to it. But we see this bigger purpose from the Old Testament tabernacle, that laver. The priests were ordered in Exodus 30, verse 20, when they go into the t- tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water, lest they die. So the laver, the smaller bowl that was in the tabernacle, the tabernacle was the same layout as the temple, just portable. This laver was a smaller portable version. The priests would butcher these animals to prepare them for sacrifice, but before they could actually come to the altar to burn them on it, they had to clean up first or else they would literally die. God said, wash up or you're going to die for, uh, if you don't clean up in water first. Now, the reason the Lord God was so adamant about this is because he wanted his people to understand the importance of purity, of cleanliness. You know, you don't walk away from a sacrifice dirty. You walk away from a sacrifice with purity. Jesus was my ultimate sacrifice for my sins on the cross. I walk away from that sacrifice clean. He cleaned me by his blood. So. Jesus sacrificed himself, not so that we would be filthy, but so that we would be made clean, right? So the priest cleaning up at the laver, the smaller bowl at the tabernacle, Old Testament, that was required of them to demonstrate purity and also so that nothing unclean would ever enter into the tabernacle or the temple. Now, we don't know exactly how big the tabernacle laver was. But we do know where they got the bronze to make it with. I want to show you a comparison here between the laver and the sea real quick. Exodus 38 and 8 says, He made the laver of bronze and its base of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So that that laver was made out of women's mirrors. They put their mirrors together, melted them down, and they formed this or hammered them out, however they did it, and made this laver. Now, how many of you ladies listening to me now, you value your mirror. <laughs> you get in front of your mirror before you go to church, before you go on a date, before you go out to eat, whatever, or just every day, you get in front of that mirror because you want to look your best. Think of it. For this laver, these Old Testament women here and at the old tabernacle, they gave up their mirrors. They gave them up. You know, 
Ladies, I have no idea exactly how much this means to you if you were to lose your mirror, but for a woman to sacrifice her looks, to be willing to go around looking, you know, not as good as she could have looked, but she did it for the glory of the Lord. That's talking about humbling yourself, less of me and more of God's, right? That, that's a humbling moment. The sacrifice, they gave up their mirrors. These women lowered themselves to elevate the Lord. So we don't know how big the tabernacle laver was, how much water it held. It was probably pretty small compared to this huge sea here in 1 Kings 7 of the temple. But basically, the sea was somewhat of like a water tower. Because it was held up high off the ground. Remember, they made bronze oxen underneath it that the sea was put on top of them. So it was elevated. So that created water pressure. You could probably get under it, turn a valve somewhere, and water would flow out. And you could wash up in it underneath there. The text says that the sea held 2,000 baths of water. That's about 12,000 gallons. That means they had a lot of intention of doing a lot of sacrifices here with this sea. Now, 2 Chronicles 4, 6 parallels this story, and it says that the sea was for the priest to wash in. That's what they washed with. So I can imagine a priest doing lots of sacrifice work, made him rather filthy, get pretty dirty. You got a knife, you're in there cutting animal flesh, blood and guts and stuff going everywhere. You got to have a place to go clean up so that you could be washed clean for your service work. And it was all for the purpose of demonstrating purity, just as the Lord had commanded the priest to do. So 1 Kings 7, 27, the carts and the lavers. He also made 10 carts of bronze. Four cubits was the length of each cart, four cubits its width, and three cubits its height. And this was the design of the carts. They had panels, and the panels were between frames. And on the panels that were between the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. And on the frames was a pedestal on top. Below the lions and oxen were wreaths of plated work. Every cart had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze, and its four feet had supports. Under the laver were supports of cast bronze beside each wreath. Its opening inside the crown at the top was one cubit in diameter, and the opening was round, shaped like a pedestal, one and a half cubits in outside diameter. And also on the opening were engravings, But the panels were square, not round. Under the panels were the four wheels, and the axles of the wheels were joined to the cart. The height of a wheel was one and a half cubits. The workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. Their axle pins, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all of cast bronze. And there were four supports at the four corners of each cart. Its supports were part of the cart itself. On the top of the cart, at the height of half a cubit, it was perfectly round. And on the top of the cart, its flanges and its panels were of the same casting. On the plates of its flanges and on its panels, he engraved cherubim, lions, and palm trees, wherever there was clear space on each, with wreaths all around. Thus he made the ten carts. All of them were of the same mold, one measure, and one shape, Then he made the ten lavers of bronze. Each laver contained forty baths, and each laver was four cubits. On each of the ten carts was a laver, and he put five carts on the right side of the house and five on the left side of the house. He set the sea on the right side of the house toward the southeast. 
Okay. A friend of mine told me he read this chapter ahead of me, and he said it sounded like a Home Depot do-it-yourself instruction book. And Ray, what in the world are you going to get out of this? Okay, just hang with me and I'll show you. (laughs) So anyway, here's all these things, this wide by that wide, and built this and built that, put it over here, put it over there. But let me me line it out. There's 10 lavers for each cart because it said that. Lavers, a bowl. We already got that part down. There's 10 lavers, one for each cart, five carts here, five carts there. Ten small bowls and one big bowl called the C. Now, the lavers on the carts, which here, this means that the lavers were used for washing animals to prepare for butchering. It was it was a work table for preparing the animals for sacrifice. And the lavers on each cart, that was used for washing the animal. Whenever you work on carving up, you need to wash a little bit. Have you ever seen somebody that had a pier that went out into a lake or or, or the, the ocean or something, and there's a fish uh, table out there with like a, a faucet that's some water with a hose or a sprayer? You catch all your fish, you bring them to that table, and you set them up there. And while you're filleting the fish off, you need a little water that you run over it to wash off the the stuff, you know, and you get your fillets out of that. I've seen that many times. So this is kind of the same deal. It's a work table with a water supply to help you wash the animal while you're preparing it for sacrifice. But the sea was for the priest to wash in. That was different. So you got a laver per cart to wash the animal and the sea for the priest to wash in. Second Chronicles 4, 6 says, He also made ten lavers and put five on the right side and five on the left to wash in them such things as they offered for the burnt offering. They would wash in them, but the sea was for the priests to wash in. So, okay, very clear cut. The ten lavers were to wash the animals that were about to be sacrificed and burned, but the sea was for the priests. So I wanted you to know what the difference was between the lavers from that sea. So that you can understand what's going on here, because you just read the text, you can get lost in it pretty quick, right? So you got these 10 bronze carts. They were portable work tables that the priest used to prepare sacrifice animals. Now, imagine all the spilled blood. Imagine the cut flesh involved with doing sacrifice work. You need something to catch all the mess and contain it. Because it's, you know, stuff's going to get everywhere. So it it was needed to be contained some kind of way. So that's why it says there were these panels, which is kind of like a tub that held about 230 gallons. So you got a laver up here. You got a work table kind of in the middle. And then you've got an opening where it would drain through into a circular frame at the bottom, probably like a drain tank to collect all everything that spilled or whatever ran out during the butcher work. And so each cart had these angelic cherubim, angelic beings, that cherubim that were designed into the cart. Now, why would you have that? Probably for the same reason why Solomon had cherubim designed into the interior of the temple, to keep the priests reminded of why they were there, what your work is all about, what you're doing here. The cherubim always represented the glory, majesty, and presence of God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, he blocked the way to the garden, so he cast them out and blocked the way with a sword that swung back and forth, and there were also cherubim there. They were visibly seen by man to remind Adam and Eve of God's power and his glory and to have reverence for God. And so these cherubim were worked into the cart so that every priest would see it, and they would have reverence and remember their respect of, of God. This is what I'm here for, to be reminded of what they're there, what their work was all about. 
So here are these 10 work tables that could be wheeled around anywhere they needed them to go. Five carts stationed on the south side of the temple, five stationed on the north. Looks to me like they're about to get pretty busy, and they're about to in the next chapter. In chapter 8, when the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the temple, they're going to do a lot of sacrifice work. 1 Kings 7 and 40, the furnishings of the temple. Hiram made the lavers and the shovels and the bowls. So Hiram finished doing all the work that he was to do for King Solomon and for the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the two pillars, the two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals, which were on top of the pillars, 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars, the 10 carts and the 10 lavers on the carts, one sea and 12 oxen under the sea, the pots, the shovels, and the bowls. All these articles which Hiram made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of burnished bronze. In the plain of Jordan, the king had them cast in clay molds between Succoth and Zaratan. And Solomon did not weigh all the articles because there were so many, the weight of the bronze was not determined. So we just got a summary of all the work that was done, and it said there was lots of bronze. That's why I'm calling it 1 Kings 7, Part 2. Lots of bronze. There was so much bronze, they couldn't measure it. They couldn't weigh it. There's too much of it. They didn't even bother to. And for some reason, 1 Kings doesn't, lift even more, doesn't list even more bronze work that Hiram did. In 2 Chronicles 4 and 1, it says, Moreover, he made a bronze altar. 20 cubits was its length, 20 cubits its width, and 10 cubits its height. Now, we've been given a lot of detail on all these temple furnishings inside. Plus, you remember the gold that was also inside the temple. Everything was overlaid with gold, the cedar planks, the walls, everything was covered in gold right inside the temple's interior. Now, the Bible is trying to emphasize to us how beautiful and how valuable the bronze was, and the, and the gold and silver and everything in this temple. The temple was immaculate. It was just beautiful and very valuable. And it was plentiful. Now, we saw that with the bronze. It was very plentiful, so much they couldn't even weigh it. And when I think about the abundance of the, the bronze, there's so much of it that they didn't even bother to weigh it. There's too much of it. It makes me realize, look how far the Israelites had come from way back when the women gave up just their mirrors. They gave up their mirrors, and they made whatever they could. They made a laver. But look how much more bronze they have. Look at the abundance that God had provided them. There's a gospel picture in this. God took them out of Egypt, of their bondage, and he said, I'm going to bring you to a land that I promised that we're going to get you to, the land I have for you. And now he's blessing them abundantly. Christian, friend, realize that when you gave your life to Jesus, he delivered you from your bondage of sin, and he took you to a promised place of covenant where he can now bless you much more abundantly. That is a picture we get here, right? Isn't that good? Good stuff. Hang with me. I'm telling you, I'm unfolding it. Let's keep going. First Kings seven forty-eight. Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, the table of gold on which was the showbread, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right side and five on the left in the front of the inner sanctuary, with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, the basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, and the censers of pure gold, and the hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner room, the most holy place, and for the doors of the main hall of the temple." So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. 
you for listening to Set for Life. We hope you can join us next time, unless Jesus returns for us first. Set for Life is the radio ministry of Pastor Ray Jensen of Calvary Chapel Pearland. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast at setforliferadio.com. Hi, this is Ray Jensen. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to encourage you in God's Word. If the Bible doesn't excite you, then you're not reading it. I want you to remember that you are not worthless. You are priceless. Messiah Jesus died on the cross to redeem you so that you can be set for life. You'll be set.